0: the crowd must have been to hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem again. Streets of the city were swollen with massive numbers of people who had come for the seven days of Passover. Thousands had now heard that Jesus not only healed the blind and the lame as he had been doing, but now he had raised a dead man to life. They wanted to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Josephus, the first century historian, provides us with the enormous size of the crowd for this major Jewish festival. He tells us that one year at Passover, the Jews sacrificed 256,500 lambs for Passover. If you multiply that number by ten worshipers, which is the minimum needed to sacrifice one lamb, you come up with a crowd estimate of two million people. Now that's Josephus's count. Some people not sure whether that can be trusted. But that's a lot of people for a city that normally held only (laughs) 40,000. Very difficult. Imagine how crowded those streets must have been. Other historians say the minimum that would have shown up for a festival like this was 250,000. So either way, the city is kind of bulging at its seams. And then they hear Jesus is coming to town. And many of them ran to see him. Added to this, the fact that Jesus is at his most popular time ever. Everywhere he went, people were running to see him anyhow. They hoped that he might perform another healing or maybe some other miracle, especially if someone they knew needed his supernatural touch. Many people hoped that he was going to become an earthly king who would drive the ruthless Romans from their fair land and restore peace to Israel. They had seen him feed thousands with just a few morsels of food. So why wouldn't this miracle worker be able to feed and clothe and equip an entire army if he wanted to? Everyone wanted a chance to see Jesus, even if they had seen him before. It's kind of like the the most popular celebrity in the country at the time. Add to this the fact that Jesus had recently raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, four days after Lazarus had been buried. And John even tells us that the very crowd who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead went around telling everybody what they had seen and encouraging them to come out to the streets to see the miracle worker also. Now, the triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to just read from John's account this morning, which is in John 12. John 12.12 is where we're going to begin. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this, John says. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. And now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word, Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a very big deal. Now, it may not seem so big to us. We have Palm Sunday every year. We go through this routinely. It's like Christmas. Christmas again. You know, it's Easter again. It's springtime again. You know, We can get so, so uh, caught up in, in the routine of it all that we miss the significance of it all. This was a very big deal. For one thing, it was one of the few events of Jesus' life that all four Gospels record in great detail. And for another thing, the triumphal entry begins the last week of Jesus' ministry here on earth. It leads up to his death, burial, and resurrection, as Jerry pointed out. This week we call Passion Week. This was the passion of the Christ. The period in time in which Jesus drew his ministry to a stunning and climactic conclusion. On Sunday, multitudes of people, perhaps more than a million people, were drawn out into the streets to welcome him to the city. I want us to think about those people this morning. Monday through Thursday then, Jesus was in the temple, day after day, teaching the people the final things that he thought were important for them to know. He's, he's really drawing things out. He's putting a line in the sand, and he, he's making it clear why he came on Thursday night. He was going to share the Last Supper with his disciples in an upper room. It was like an advanced celebration of the Passover feast that everyone else was going to celebrate that weekend. And then he was betrayed that night by Judas Iscariot. And then he was tried before both the Jews and the Romans and crucified on Friday. And then on the third day, Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave by his own power. Because death could not hold him. He rose victorious over that grave. What an important Seven days we are entering in at this point in Jesus' ministry. Arguably they're the most important seven days in the history of mankind. Bible scholar Doug Bookman stressed the points that Jesus was making in this triumphal entry. He said that Jesus came into Jerusalem deliberately. This was no, oh, I guess we'll have a parade today. I, I guess people are going to you know say something about me today. This was intentional. It's obvious. We see that he's already arranged for the donkey's cold ahead of time. He sends out the disciples, and he says, you know, they're going to ask you why. You were asked for just to say the, little, the master needs it, and they'll let you have it. You had it all set up. But there's more to it than that, because Jesus is deliberately making a stand and, and, and making a point here. Brookman points out that his decision to come in this manner had been clearly revealed in the Old Testament and for several things. The method, the timing, and the meaning of his coming. The method, Je- Zechariah 9.9, 9. Uh, Jerry quoted that for us this morning, and he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, your, sing- your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The method, it was decided ahead of time, hundreds of years before. The timing, you go back to Daniel 9, the exact time of the Messiah's arrival being calculated. Remember, if you've studied about the weeks of Daniel, the 62 and a half weeks, the 70th week, and so on. And Daniel 9 says, Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets and a trench, but in times of trouble and after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. And desolations have been decreed. So this was the right time according to the scriptures. And the meaning. Psalm 118, 26 and 27. uh, The words that were being spoken in the city that day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People were just shouting out praise to Jesus, but they were saying exactly what the psalm had said. Nobody told them, oh, the script for today is Psalm 118. This is a, a spontaneous celebration of Jesus coming into that city, but it fulfilled specifically what the Scriptures had said. Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament Scriptures right and left. Well, this morning I want us to take a few minutes to kind of use our imagination. How's your imagination today? Maybe for kids it's easier than adults. Maybe for teens it's just a little bit easier than the older adults. You know, you get to be my age and your imagination isn't all that great anymore. You know, life is just kind of settled in. So use your imagination. Put on your little thinking hat this morning or however you want to imagine that. And I want you to pretend that we're all in the crowd that day. Jesus is way up here on the hilltop. Bethany and Bethpage is up above the city, and they're starting to come down through the Mount of Olives. And you can see him coming, and he can look down into the city of Jerusalem. But from very many vantage points within the city, you could look up onto that hill, and you would see a crowds forming, a big crowd in a parade. And you're being brought into this crowd this morning. Some of us are on the streets when the news breaks out that Jesus is coming into the city. And some of us immediately run to some vantage point where we could see him better. You know, we get up onto the second story somewhere, or we look up on a rooftop, or, or we get on the edge of this the, the city wall. Maybe some of us would run out to tell others about it encourage others. Hey, did you hear did Jesus? Come? come on out. Come on. Join the parade. And all of us are sure that nothing like this has ever happened in Jerusalem before. Everybody's got to get in on this. But here's the question this morning. Who's there? Who are the different people there? Because everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has their own their view of what's happening, what's going on that day. How did those various people react to his coming? What were they doing now, uh, now that they knew the popular preacher and miracle worker was coming to town? So what are the reactions? Let's look at different people. I've imagined in my mind, who these people might be. First of all, there's a very visible people that are the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers who are kind of scorning the whole thing. Now, at first, I think the Roman soldiers are a little bit upset. Like, oh, no, there's going to be a riot. <laughs> and we're in charge of, you know, policing this and, and keeping order. And so they immediately pull out a, a, a bunch of soldiers, you know, and they set them at very strategic points. They say, make sure, you know, things don't get out of hand here because there's, there's a lot of people and they're all excited. And you know what can happen when a, when a mob starts. And then pretty soon they realize, really not much is going to happen. People are going to get excited. They're going to sing. They're going to shout. Jesus is going to come into the city. And then they see him riding, not on a white stallion, but the foal of a donkey. Uh, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of silly. That's kind of, that's kind of ridiculous from the Roman standpoint. Larry East tells us what the Romans were used to when their generals were given that conqueror's welcome. Back home, after they had conquered, somebody he says, whenever a Roman general was victorious on foreign soil and he had killed at least five thousand of the enemy, he, he and gained new territory for the empire, he was given a Roman triumph celebration when he returned home. It was a Roman equivalent of the American ticker tape parade, only with much more splendor. The general would ride into the city in a gold-covered chariot with white stallions pulling it, a symbol of the warrior general displayed the trophies that he had won you know all these uh, things he had taken in battle and the enemy leaders he had captured were kept alive just for this moment and they would be paraded in chains down the streets of the city behind the general in his chariot and the parade ended at the arena where some of these captives then were taken out of their chains and they were forced to fight wild beasts to the death you know to the amusement of the crowd East continued yes I bet some of these Roman soldiers probably laughed at what they were seeing in the streets of Jerusalem that day. At the sight of this so-called king, what real king would ride on a dumb donkey? What powerful leader would stoop so low? They probably found it amusing. Compared to their Roman triumph celebrations, our Lord's entry was nothing. So maybe they're the people of scorn, and maybe not just the Roman soldiers, maybe if you saw this. Yeah, this is not for me. I'm just kind of disgusted by it. Secondly, there are the people that are spectators. They're excited because people are excited. You know, They just get excited about good things that are happening. They like the show. They're not really all that interested in Jesus. They just see people enthused and say, Oh, what, what's going on? I want to be part of this. I want to see what's going on. And they're not really interested in following Jesus. They're only there for the amusement that they might get from the parade. And these people are out to see the show, not the master. As spectators, they came to see the spectacle. They came to see the spectacular and they had heard that there was a guy named Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. Maybe we'll get to see him too. And they were anxious to see the one who had experienced such a phenomenal miracle, if indeed it were true. Well, something was extraordinary that was happening in that city that day and they wanted to be part of that. They didn't want to miss it. They wanted to make sure they were there just in case something special happened. And so they're I would call them spectators. Aren't they everywhere? You, know, you get a crowd going, and more people join the crowd. What's going on? What's going on? i got to be part of this. i got to see what's happening. They get all enthused about that. They really don't even understand. are not really even part of it, but they want to spectate what's happening in the world. One preacher got thinking about this a little bit, and I was reading what he saw. I said, you know, you may be on a little something here. He says, isn't that why some people even come to church today? To see the show, to join the party. You know, it's a it's a social thing to be part of a church for them. They don't come to worship the king, but they come to see who's singing that day. Or they come because who's preaching that day, or because their friends are there, or they come just to socialize. Maybe they come to see if they like Lazarus can get in on some good stuff. You know, maybe there's something they could benefit from this. And he said, Be careful, don't get in the way if there's a meal because they stampede for the meal. There's food, free food being offered. And there's a certain number of people that are attracted by that. And then this preacher's viewpoint, I'm not sure I share all of this, but he said maybe that's where a lot of the mega churches have come from, because there's a lot of activity, big event, event after event, big concert, big activity of some kind, and people are drawn to that, but really there's not the substance behind that sometimes. It's not the commitment of that. It's just just excitement for excitement's sake. And you could build a church off of that for a while. I'm reading a book right now called Secondhand Faith where he was part of the staff of a church like that and then all of a sudden things blew up and the whole church just crumbled because so much of it was that, that kind of fluffy stuff that attracted a crowd but there wasn't substance to it. So... Is that happening for some of these people? You know, They're just excited. Not sure why they're excited, but they want to get in on it. And so they're in the streets too. And hearing other people shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not saying that. They're just excited because other people are excited. There's a third group. The leg- legitimate group, the hurting people, the needy people of the streets of Jerusalem. They knew Jesus could heal people. They had witnessed this or they had heard about it, and they had something to be healed. They had some some malady, some injury. Maybe they were physically challenged from birth. Maybe they've grown sick and they can't get over the illness. And they are now focused on their own needs. And they're thinking, you know, Jesus done miracles so many other places. Maybe he'll do something for me. If I get out there beside him. And so we remember Jesus having this happen to you know the blind men on the side of the road. Hey Jesus, how about us? And you got the leper reaching out to him, and you have different people. Of obvious need, and it's okay to have those needs, but they're there, and they're they're wanting Jesus' attention for that. Back in John six thirty, I remember reading where Jesus had fed the thousands with just a, a little loaf, of, uh, loaves, loaves of bread, and a miracle had happened. And people came up to him. As John six thirty, it says, "What miraculous sign then are you going to give us so that we may see it and believe you? What you're going to do, Jesus?" And there's a certain number of people that their whole relationship with Jesus is about what he can do for them. It's okay to have physical needs. Jesus answers those physical, those emotional needs. I'm not not discrediting and, 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 and making that anything less than it should be. But is that the sum total of a person's relationship with him? What you're going to get from him? Some people have that attitude. You know, what are you going to do for me, Jesus? What are you going to do for me today? I know you did this, but what about today? Is that the sum total of their relationship? Those people are in the crowd, too. And then there's another group. It's a pretty significant group, powerful group. They're the power-hungry opponents that Jesus has. And they're witnessing this. John brings it into his account about this. They're the Jewish Sanhedrin. There, there may perhaps other political leaders, you know, Oh, what's happening now? Why are people so excited about Jesus? He's a troublemaker. And they're disgusted with his popularity and his success. They're looking for a way to get rid of him. They've been planning it for months. You know, the Gospel writers have been telling us and they were seeking a way to kill him, seeking a way to get rid of him. And they've already shown their disgust for the simple-minded people. I remember one time back in, in uh, John's writing, I think in chapter 7, where, where uh you know, they, they send the soldiers after Jesus to collect him and bring him in, and, and they go there, and they're just mesmerized by him, and they bring they don't bring him back. They come back empty hand. They said, well, where is he? And they said, Well, nobody ever spoke like they like he speaks. And, and they said, well, you don't know anything, you know. Have, have any of the leaders followed him? you know, Have any of the rest of us misled by such a guy like that, such a charlatan, you know? And they put themselves in that place of pride as if they knew more. They... They were not taken in by Jesus. And they're very upset that Jesus has all these people clamoring, wanting to know him, wanting to be around him, and they're disgusted by it all. Ezekiel. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God spoke against such misguided leaders. He said in Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. This is where these Pharisees were at this time. They're thinking of themselves, thinking that they're losing power, they're losing influence. And we leaders of the church today need to be careful that never happens to us. That we get so absorbed and the leadership that it becomes about us some leaders in God's church today want the most visible and important positions don't they they want the power they want great influence over other people and they begin to say things that will make them more popular they'll even preach what we call a health and prosperity gospel you know everything's going to work out if you listen to this and attract a crowd to that they promise what people want to hear They promise, come to Jesus and all your cares and troubles will be over. Come to Jesus. He'll give you all you ever wanted. And people love that kind of a promise, so they come. It's kind of like some of our our politicians today. I'm going to promise you the moon. I don't know how we'll pay for it, but I'm going to promise you that. Vote for me. And people will follow a leader like that. And some leaders then become more and more like that. And the same way the Pharisees and jealous members of the Sanhedrin were only interested in themselves. They were only interested in the prestige of their positions. And they opposed anyone or anything that threatened that power. So they're in the crowd, and they are upset when they look at the whole thing and say, look how the whole world is going after him. This is getting us nowhere. And they're, they're very disgusted. Well, there's two last groups that I see, maybe you'll see someone else. I'll give you a chance to tell me if you see anybody else here. Two last groups, both of them are more noble, more honorable, much more sincere in their praise at Jesus' triumphal entry. First of all, of course, there's the disciples. The true disciples. The true followers of Jesus. We would include the 11 disciples for sure. Jesus is scared it's there, but I'm not sure I'd put him in the category of a true disciple, because he's looking for a way to get rid of him too. He's looking for a way to make profit off of him personally. But there were probably many more. We know by the first chapter of Acts there's 120 followers of Jesus, strong followers, legitimate followers. It's not that they totally understood what was going on. It's not that the disciples even coming down the hill into Jerusalem really understood. It says later on we understood these things. Later understand we, we understood what we had done for him, to him. But at the time, we didn't know. It just means that they're sincere. They're devoted. They didn't even want to tolerate the thought of Jesus' death. You know, at least three times, Jesus said, you know, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Son of man is going to be beaten up. He's going to be killed. He's going to be hung on a tree and die. But on the third day, he's going to rise again. They didn't want to hear that. They couldn't hear it. They, they just blocked it out of their minds. And when it actually started happening on the Thursday night when he's arrested in the garden, they fled. Most of them hid behind locked doors while he was being crucified, although a few stayed close enough to see him actually die. The women, Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, other women, and even the Apostle John are sitting at the feet of Jesus when he died on the cross. In spite of their misunderstandings, these true disciples, these followers of Jesus, were there for the right reasons. They were offering up true praise to Jesus on that day, not just the words they were hearing other people saying. And they rejoiced to hear that the people of Jerusalem were welcoming him into their city. That Passion Week, their whole world was going to be rocked, wasn't it? They truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, their Savior. And eventually, all of them surrendered their very lives on his behalf. Are we as devoted as them? Well, there's one more group. Before I talk about them, I want to see, is there anybody I missed? Anybody think of somebody I didn't see? Were you in the crowd? Did you miss somebody? Anybody? There's one other group. You have to read a few extra verses in John 12 to find them. One more group of people were there. We might have missed them because they were kind of lingering in the shadows somewhere. They weren't out there with everyone else, but they were watching. They were part of it. They wanted to see. I'll call them the outsiders because they really are outside. They're outside the in crowd. They they truly wanted a Savior. They needed a Savior. They knew that, but they're not Jews. They're not welcome to the party. They haven't been invited but they somehow instinctively knew, we need this, this man. We need this one coming into the city today. And they included a group of Greeks, of Gentiles, who said to Philip, Sir, we, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Go down to John 12, 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in in Galilee, with the request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. The outsiders knew they needed a Savior. Maybe that's the one you would best identify with. Maybe that would be you or me, because we're not Jews, most of us. We're Gentiles. We weren't invited to this party Initially, later on, we we're brought in as full members of that body, that family of God. Do you feel like an outsider this morning? Which which person in this crowd do you feel most like? Do you feel like the scorner? You know, oh, this is silly. Why do people get us so excited about Jesus? He's nothing. Do you feel like the person that's really needy? You know, all I can think about is my need. I need Jesus to fix me. I need Jesus to cure me. I need Jesus to heal me, and I'm just focused on that. Are you the person that's kind of opposed to Jesus? You know, just I'm not going to give any way to him. You know, don't get excited about him. I've got something better here that I'm offering. Or maybe, maybe you're just this this outsider that's trying to figure out how do I possibly fit into this picture? I'm not part of this. I'm in the shadows. I'm not invited. Well, this week, we all have the opportunity to be like those excited disciples and followers of Jesus who ran to tell others that their Savior is coming. And I, I think of these people running out of the streets to to, to to you know see Jesus coming down the hill, and they think, oh, wait, my mom's back there. She needs to know. And, and my buddy's back there. And the group I hang out with, they need to know. And so they, they, they stop themselves, they run back, and they gather up some more people and say, come on, let's go. Let's go see, because Jesus is coming to town. And this week, we're leading up to the week of Easter. This week, we have one week until Easter Sunday. And we've got some special invitations that we want you to take with you today. We're going to make it real easy for all of us. We've got Easter eggs. Really easy. And in the Easter eggs, there's a piece of candy. All right. We're going to give this out to people. But there's also an invitation. <laughs> And in the invitation, it says, next week, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Christ at New Hope Christian Church. Would you come, be with us? Would you come out for a sunrise service, for the 9 o'clock service, the 10.30 service, whatever? And on the back, it even tells them a little bit about the health fair that we're going to be having in a little while. And all I want you to do is be part of that advance party that says, hey, listen, Jesus is coming to town. Get the word out. And take a bunch of these with you today. Take a dozen, take two dozen, whatever you want to do. Pass them out to people say, Hey, i got something for you. Easter's coming. And the invitation is in here. We would like you to come and celebrate Jesus with us next Sunday. But I really want to end with this, this other bottom line today. And it's a very personal bottom line for you and me. And that's the question, who is Jesus to you? Because that person in the crowd, the reason they are the person in the crowd, the scorner, the opponent, the needy person, or whoever it may be, is because of who they think Jesus is what Jesus can be for them what Jesus is to them because just because he's a a miracle worker doesn't mean you want him to be your savior you know take care of this problem i have but i don't really want you to get that involved don't save me from my sin don't save me from you know my my filthy habits my my sinfulness and a Savior, and yes, yeah, save me from that. I'll take that. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be your Lord, does it? doesn't mean he's going to be your master. Yeah, I'll take the forgiveness. I'll take eternity. I'll take heaven from you. But stay out of the rest of it. I want to stay in control there. You know, unless Jesus is everything to you, then he's really nothing to you. You don't just take part of him. You don't just say, I'll be there for him on Sunday, you know, and the people are all excited and all yelling out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by Friday? When now everybody's against him? We're not going to stand up for him then. Unless he's everything, he's nothing. And many people who praised Jesus on Sunday cursed him on Friday. You know that? Many people, when the going got tough, They got going too. They just left. They said, "Oh, this isn't for me. This is not what I signed up for." Who is Jesus to you, really? Who is Jesus to you? If you feel like an outsider, let me let me just speak to your heart for a moment. You're not an outsider, because He died for you too. You might feel like you're the person that needs to hide in the shadows. That you're not invited to this party, but you definitely are. Because he died not only for the best person who ever lived, he died for the worst person who ever lived. He died for those that we think are so righteous and blameless and so good. And he died for the worst scoundrel among us. He died for you and me. And we are not outsiders, none of us. We're all invited to this party. And we're invited to make Jesus our Savior and our Lord. Will you make that decision? Will you let Jesus lead your life? Let me pray for you this morning. God, I don't know the hearts of the people that are here today, but you do. I don't know the needs. Um, May be aware of a few of those. May know something of what's going on in somebody's life, but Lord, you are intimately involved, intimately aware of every person in this room. You know our hearts. Nothing is hidden from you. Some of us feel like outsiders, like we don't belong, like we have, we have no claim to you. And it's hard for us to even get to the point where we say to somebody, hey, I want to see Jesus. I would I would like to see Jesus. Is that possible? And then we discover yes it is. It's it's the plan. It's it's the dream. It's the desire that you have in your heart, Lord, for each of us. You want us all to come home. No matter how far we've strayed, no matter how many times we have rebelled against you, no matter how we've hurt you and and uh, broken your heart. You want us back. You want us home. And Jesus died for us as well as everyone else. Help us to all hear that powerfully today, Lord. Help us to know that the party is for us and we are invited. As we celebrate Jesus this week, as we come now through his Passion Week up to the resurrection celebration of next Sunday... Help us, Lord, to think of the people around us. They may be the scorners. They may be the needy. They may be the powerful. They may be the people that are just attracted by uh, excitement but really don't have the depth of a relationship with you. Let's, Let's think of those people, Lord. Let's invite them. Let's encourage them to be part of the celebration next week. Let us help them draw close to you, to seek you in their lives just by a simple invitation. May we help each other while it is still today, while there is still time before Jesus returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.